0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining me. I have Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed, my co-hostesses, with me at the bottom of the hour. We're going to be talking about a new Gallup poll that speaks to a new growing trend in the U.S. Americans wanting larger families. But first, with the cause of canonization for the servant of God, Jerome Lejeune, still in process. We talk with two beautiful people in Madrid that are very closely working on this cause, furthering this cause, and some amazing research they continue to work on regarding Down syndrome. I am very happy to introduce you to my new friends, Dr. Monica Lopez-Baraona, she serves as president of the Jerome Lejeune Foundation in Spain. She's also a highly esteemed member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. And also Pablo Segrist, he's vice president of the One of Us Federation. Welcome to the show, Monica and Pablo. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Gracie.
0: You are joining us from beautiful Madrid. I see it's a beautiful day in Madrid. I can see on the video. So thank you for making time for us. You are both important people. Uh, Monica, you are the president of the Jerome Lejeune Foundation in Spain and also a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, something. Both of these topics were very interested. And Pablo, you're also a member of the Jerome Lejeune Foundation and also vice president of the One of Us Federation. Jerome Lejeune, tell us about, Monica, tell us about Jerome Lejeune. Why should all of us, especially Catholics and people who are interested in, in the pro life cause, why should all of us know that name?
2: I believe that Jean Le Gen is really a reference, not only for Catholic, but for science in general, genetic and medicine He was uh, the father of the genetics and he was also a very good Catholic and close friend to saint jean paul II. So uh, Jérôme Le Gien was the one that discovered the cause of the Down syndrome He identified that people with Down syndrome has in them in the 21st chromosome three chromatides um, a, tri- a Once he discovered this um, was really an, an issue in the in the scientific community. He was proposed twice for the Nobel Prize. The first uh, share in genetics at the Sorbonne University in Paris was just created because he deserved to, to lead this share. This and uh, he lived um, with um, all his life with the idea of uh, having discovered something really crucial, but at the same time, somehow the tool that, uh, that made possible to kill Down syndrome people in the womb of their, of their mothers because um, this, this tool, this uh, identification of the, of the three chromatides and the 21st uh, chromosome allows to identify the Down syndrome during pregnancy and that, in, that suppose that, that, uh, that has as a consequence that having the diagnosis of, uh, of a Down syndrome in uh, many countries nowadays, the, the mother may uh, provoke an abortion. Jerome Legend lives with this um, with this um, sorrow, uh, especially because at that time in Paris, the law of the regulation of abortion was this, was being discussed, and uh, and it was being discussed especially for handicapped people. So he. Uh, live in parallel the scientific life uh, in order to go deeper in the discovery and to try to find a solution for Down syndrome people. But on top of that, he really started a, a campaign in order to defend life from conception and to especially defend life of, of Down syndrome people. He was a member of the Pontifical Academy of Science and it was there in, um, in a council conference that he gave at the Pontifical Academy of Science, where Jean-Paul II was attending this meeting, and he found in Jérôme Lejeune some someone really intelligent, really sharp, he approached to him in order to clarify some issues. So they, it started there a really, really special relationship and friendship. And um, Jérôme Lejeune proposed to the Pope to start another academy an academy dedicated exclusively to uh issues that uh, that have to do with life in specific uh, times of life where life is is especially feeble, And that was the beginning of the Pontifical Academy for Life that um, Jean-Paul II uh, started very quickly and uh, Jérôme de was the first president. Unfortunately uh, he passed away only three months later from being appointed as president of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Well, his heritage now continues because this, um, this institution is Is still alive at the at the Vatican. So, I mean, there there is always little time in order to to talk about a a figure that really accomplished so many things. But I will point out especially the the top level of science that Jerome Legend developed, very close to uh, fidelity to the teaching of the Church, especially defending life from conception. Till real, uh, till till natural death, and especially focusing the, in the in life of the people with Down syndrome or other diseases related with um, genetic um, alterations in um, in the,
0: Pablo and Monica um, there's there's uh, I have here a beautiful quote from uh, Jerome Lejeune about about prenatal diagnosis I imagine him Dr Lejeune as somebody who felt that he had opened a Pandora's box right that with his scientific with his wonderful scientific talent that God had given him this this wonderful research talent he had opened the the door to prenatal testing, which all of us know is used to eliminate undesirables in a sense, right? Uh, Children that are not desired by society because they come with um, a disability or, and and I've seen, I'm a radiologist as people, as people who follow the show know, and I do prenatal ultrasound. And and I know that some of the children that I diagnose with things as simple as uh, a cleft lip or a cleft palate are eliminated because they they don't, they don't come up to the standards of, of our society. Who is it, the, We are so focused no? on, on perfection, as though perfection is something that we could achieve. Uh, so he wrote, Chromosomal racism is being waved around as a flag of freedom. They will kill the abnormal ones in utero, since they can recognize the abnormal chromosomes by a simple amniotic sample. The fact that this denial of all medicine, of all biological fraternity that unites human beings should be the only current practical application of the knowledge about trisomy 21 is more than heartbreaking. Uh, Pablo, do you feel that with those words, he expresses the, the terrible door that, that was opened with prenatal diagnosis into our
1: culture? Of course he does, yes. But uh, well, what I feel is that really this, this sentence sy- synthesizes the, the drama of, of Jérôme Lejeune's life uh, because he really was best of science, and uh, and he was very confident on, on the development of science. So he really uh, worked for that. He was very positive on, on, the, on the future uh, scientific development after the, the, the discovery of trisomy 21. So he really was more than upset. He was really shocked seeing that uh, his, his colleagues in science and, uh, and governments and uh, politicians, well, using his discovery yes to, that, to put these people in the, in the center of of, of, of being well uh, of being killed so not, not solving the problem associated to the trisomy 21 so looking for uh, a solution for, for intellectual disease and uh, intellectual disability. And how to improve autonomy, and how to improve all these uh, pathologies that are uh, many times associated with uh, this intellectual disease. But uh, focusing on diagnosing uh, during pregnancy and eliminating. So he, he was really uh, shocked uh, about this. And as he was a doctor, because he was really a doctor, he was mm, he did uh, this research. Because of being a doctor, because he was so engaged with his patients and he was always looking for their uh, best quality of life, it was because of being uh, an engaged doctor that he went out of the of the consultation to uh, to defend them in uh, parliaments in uh, all the all, all forums where he could. And this, he knew very well, would cost him the, the recognition of the scientific world. Uh, in fact, uh, during the studies for the um, for the uh, the cause of canonization of Jérôme Lejeune, it was proved that at, at least twice he was nominated for the Nobel Prize, but he didn't receive it, the Nobel Prize of Medicine, because... Uh, Of his, they they thought they they would give him a political power for his fight. So, which is something he really didn't want at all. He wasn't a politician. He didn't want that. He only wanted to protect his uh, patients. So, really, this was his drama. But on the other hand, this arised the man. We could say no in in his. Uh, whole humanity and he uh, dedicated his whole life to protect the weakest of the weakest as he would say no the, the 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 child with an intellectual disability in the womb of a mother who is completely unprotected if the if the mother doesn't protect him after that, he was committed to protect all weak people. So uh, he was advising many, many well, different forums, public forums, and notably the Catholic Church in scientific issues related of, uh, to the protection of life, life of the ill uh, people, the life of the of the elder. So he was really he was really engaged, and this made him one of the fathers of modern bioethics really and a reference to all of us which has been recognized in fact by the catholic church by uh, de- declaring him venerable so by declaring he lived the the virtues in a heroic sense mm-hmm. you know, at a heroic level we could say
0: so so his life after when when he started defending nascent human life especially those with disabilities his life became a kind of white martyrdom i suppose is what we're supposed to understand is that he, um, he knew what he would face when he came, when he was so strong in defense of life, that it wasn't just the missing of a Nobel prize that, which he obviously deserved, but the contempt of other scientists, right. And the, and the, and being pushed out of the scientific establishment. I wonder if, if that was, he pushed out Monica of the scientific establishment in a sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, uh, something that is really important to know is that science needs financial support mm-hmm. in order to get developed. So when he first discovered the, not only the Down, the cause of Down syndrome, but other, other genetic diseases as the other genetic diseases, he had a lot of financial support. He had a magnificent uh, laboratory with a lot of collaborators and he really, he could be able to develop. Really, science in 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 a, in a very nice way. But from the very moment that he has started to defend life, to defend life in front of the parliament in front of of society in front of the of the scientific community little by little he was you know putting apart he was kind of rejected he lacked the financial support and he lived really in a very small laboratory with a few collaborators in order to continue developing science but not in the way that he could be able to develop if 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 he was not being rejected and and he knew that he perfectly knew that he was invited to many international meetings top level he was invited and consulted by presidents of of, of different um, countries uh, URSS at the moment, United States, he received the um, Kennedy Prize. I mean, he had the international recognition, but he never refused to say what he had to say in front of however. And that really had a cost for him, a real cost.
0: And this is a cost that scientists today and people in general people today face when they when they come out in defense of life. Especially, especially when um, when they say that science ought to be confined within ethical margins, right? Because there's we live in a world of scientism where science reigns absolute, as though science had any moral ap- applications or implications, which it doesn't, right? Science is uh, science is uh, a kind of measuring tool and an investigative tool that we have to understand the natural world, but it doesn't tell us how we should act in the natural world. Um, so, Jerome Lejeune. I think all of us should be very thankful to him that he, he puts that the ethical limits of science it, in a way that he bright lights it, right? And, and in a way that all of us, whether we're involved in science or not, should be, should be admiring of. Pablo, what does the, 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 the Jérôme Lejeune Foundation do now besides, besides uh, highlight the beautiful life and works of the venerable Jérôme Lejeune?
1: Well, the Jérôme Lejeune Foundation tries to continue the, the the all the, the the mission we could say of Jerome Lejeune. In fact, it was created immediately after his death because uh, the the families of their patients asked the family of Jerome Lejeune to continue working and fighting for them. So uh, his wife created the foundation with some of, of of his sons and daughters, and what we do is. Uh, we, we organize it in three missions, we could say. First of all, the uh, taking care of people with intellectual disability of generic origin, not only Down syndrome, but most of, of our patients have it, but also people with other intellectual diseases. We have four medical consultations two in France, the main one in Paris, the other in Nantes, and uh, another in Argentina, in Cordoba, and the last one was open in Madrid last year. And uh, where we care for people with Down syndrome from the very first moment of being diagnosed uh, to the last moment of their life with a very specialized uh, medical care, very near to research, so uh, very updated. The second mission is research itself. So we do research, we promote research, we fund research all around. So we work with most of the the, uh, teams working with intellectual disability just to look for the way to improve autonomy of people with intellectual disease and also to uh, improve or help to diagnose uh, as early as possible other diseases associated with these genetic disorders and uh, well, improving uh, in general quality of life of people with uh, intellectual disability. And last uh, but not least uh, is the, also the defense of life, defense of the weakest, So, in this sense, we have this International Chair on Bioethics, which is presided by uh, Dr. Lopez Barraona, and uh, we educate, we inform, we do campaigns to to make people aware of the importance of human dignity, human life, and the importance of, of engaging for that and protecting human life.
0: What a wonderful uh, set of uh, foundational principles for a wonderful foundation. And Monica, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about your work at the Pontifical Academy for Life. First, tell us, if, for our listeners that don't know what, what, what that is, um, tell us what the, the Academy does and where where it exists.
2: Well, the Academy, as I mentioned before, was a suggestion of Jerome Lejeune to uh, Holy John Paul II, and uh, he really understood the pope the need of the church of having an institution inside the Vatican devoted to defend life in its fable um, periods of of time meaning the beginning and the end especially but all all over life there are specific issues and specific moments at which life has been has to be defended So the the aim of the academy was this one. It's an institution that is um, uh, where um, different kind of people is appointed. There are medical doctors, basic scientists, philosophers, theologians, (laughs) jurists, you know. So it's like an interdisciplinary uh, institution from many different countries. Originally, the idea of Jérôme Legienne was the academy needs to be preceded, the president should be a lay person. What happened with him and with the second president that was president of the Catholic University of Chile, was a medical doctor, also PhD, Juan de Dios Vial Correa. And later on, the academy has not longer been preceded by a lay person. Right now is Ashmi Chop Aglia, the one that that is the the president. Normally, the the work of the academy consists in um, doing some research research, study on topics that are either raised out by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or even for the Pope, what happened at the time of Temple II. And also, the Academy organizes an annual Congress, a General Assembly, that is uh, dedicated to uh, an issue that is considered important for life in the days. For example, uh, we lately have been working, before the pandemic, on um AI uh, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and also in elderly care of elderly for uh, that, that those have been the two last big issues that that we have addressed.
0: Uh, that's very important issue with the with the greying of the population, right? As as people have stopped yeah. reproducing, almost stopped reproducing, uh, elderly care is going to be more and more. I think the temptation will be to deny the elderly care or to offer them yeah. euthanasia or yeah. suicide. I don't think that's far away from us. So the Pontifical Academy for Life it Focuses on all these times in, in in a human being's life when they're most vulnerable, right? So the elderly, exactly. the unborn, mm-hmm. and everything in between. Like everything else these days, there's controversy around that, even within the church. And Monica, you've experienced some of this controversy recently. You spoke out about some changes or some implied changes in in the church's teaching on contraception. Tell us well, what happened there, um, if you if you can do that in a in a couple of minutes.
2: I really do not think that there is a any a contradiction in the church teaching itself. The church teaching is expressed by encyclicals, as, as we all know. Uh, this issue is very well addressed in humanity, and this is the teaching of the church. But On top of that, it is true that there have been meetings and different uh, places where this issue of contraception has been discussed. Even inside the academy, it has been a working group a year ago, a little bit longer than a year ago, that has published the conclusions in the Editrice Vaticana. But it is very important to remark that this is not the teaching of the church. The discussions that people have inside of the academy, even if it is upon academy or the different meetings or congresses that. People develop is not the magister or it's not the teaching of the church and the teaching of the church in contraception so far is inhumaneide and is extremely clear
0: and I suppose in your meetings in the in the academy there is open discussion of all sorts of different viewpoints and ways of approaching things and as you say they don't really touch upon the the teachings of the church which are not um, they're, they're not something that can be magically changed by a conference
2: exactly that is very important to, that is very important to know and yes of course in the academy there are open discussions or there are mm, different issues that are uh, addressed by small groups it, it really depends on how it, it's necessary to work for each issue but it's just really important that uh, something that uh, is published at the Editrice Vaticana may may, mm, may be a, a source of, of um, confusion uh, mm-hmm. um, that, that mm-hmm. happened last year and I uh, myself i i wrote and I, I accept some interviews in order to say what i'm what i'm saying right now the discussion that is um, taken in uh, even if it is inside a, a pontifical academy is not a change in the teaching of the church and until now the teaching of the church in contraception is extremely clear in humanity and we have to follow that that's it
0: and for our and we have to follow it for our own good i might add exactly,
2: <laughs> for exactly. our good and the good of all the
0: culture exactly. and all of
2: society as a matter of fact uh, is, uh is really a beauty to live uh, a sponsor life according to the teaching in, in humanity and uh, from the chair of bioethics we have uh, had a meeting uh, last may in rome in order to really analyze and rediscover the beauty of humanity so, and um, Believe Me is of extreme actuality, and uh, there we had the possibility to listen to the testimony of different couples that either have been living in uh, Humane Vire since uh, they were engaged or before, and the opposite um, couples that really were not living in and then they discover and they start to live, and how that changed his life, his matrimony, his uh, family, et cetera. So, Humane Vire is actual, is really beautiful is worthy to believe and is the only teaching of the church on contraception
0: Humane vitae uh, for our listeners is something you can easily find online uh, at the Vatican archives but also um, anywhere you can google it and it will come up and it is a very beautiful document and it's prophetic because it was written it was written before um, before the logical conclusions which we have seen of, of a contraceptive mentality and, and an abortive mentality have taken had taken root in our society, but we are living now in, in times when we can see those conclusions and, and the warnings in Humana Vitae of what would happen have actually come true and I think have have ex- have exceeded the worst possible the worst possible expectations or fears, no, of, of of the contraceptive craze that that has taken over our world. So it's definitely worth reading and Pablo, before we go, please tell our listeners where can they learn more about Dr. Jerome Lejeune, the venerable Dr.
1: Mm -hmm. well they can learn more about it uh, in the sites of the jérôme lejeune foundation we have several sites in english in the states you have uh, the legend foundation usa uh, which is legendfoundation.org and there they can find uh, many information they can also go to site in in spanish for example which is fundacionlejeune.es or in French, for French speakers. So yes, and we will be very happy if they want to contact us to provide them more information. And there are uh, very, very excellent books, uh, biographies of Jérôme Lejeune. Uh, The most remarkable is one uh, written by the postulator of, of the cause of beatification. It's a lady that really writes very good, very easy to read. It's, yeah, it's a very nice book which is called uh, Jean Lejeune, The Freedom of the Wise Man, uh, and the writer is Od Dugas. So yes, That's a great title, The Freedom of the Wise
0: One. That's a very good title. Yes. So thank you for yes. sharing your wisdom, <laughs> both of you. us, both of you to our sharing your wisdom on our on our show today. And uh, we look forward to learning more about Dr. Jerome Lejeune, and we look forward to more wonderful work from the Pontifical Academy for Life. Thank, Thank you. Crazy. Thank you
3: very
0: much. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. For the rest of the show I have my TCA colleagues Lee Sneed and Ashley McGuire here to discuss a new Gallup poll with interesting findings. Thanks for joining me ladies on Conversations with Consequences. Great to be with you Gracie. Nice to see you both. We have a great topic before us today that the Institute for Family Studies released a series of reflections on the results of a new Gallup survey on Americans' desire for large families, which has hit a 50-year high. The three of us and our other colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, we all have what are considered large families these days, although probably historically they weren't very large. We have four or five children, right? Each of us. That's pretty large. And it, and it requires a lot of planning, a lot of work between the father and the mother, and and a lot of so and a lot of sacrifices, right? Depending on on your lifestyle, and even if you have a lot of means, you're still going to sacrifice because you would have more means if you had fewer children. And there's all sorts of things that go go into that. But I I found it very interesting, and I know that you ladies also did that. The desire for large families is at an all all-time high, or at least a recent all-time high. Oh, since 1971.
4: Well, it certainly is interesting because it it doesn't line up with the way family size is talked about. <clears throat> you know, the stories you read are about how people aren't having kids because they're worried about the environment or. They're worried about bringing children into this world and it is true actually that people are not having the family size that they want um people's desire for children is not lining up with the number of children that they're actually having which is a you know separate conversation but but it is interesting to see that big families are in Mm -hmm. vogue again as as the author of the institute for family studies piece put it and you know i'm sure there's going to be a lot of analysis um about this in the coming weeks because it is pretty surprising um, but, you know, my own personal. Uh, thought is that if you could trace back to a point in popular culture uh, when we saw sort of a turning point in terms of how people viewed family size, it was when Kate Middleton and Prince William announced that they were expecting their third. And this was really surprising to people because she had suffered with severe morning sickness, the kind that has you in the hospital. It can be life threatening, and it's something that all the money in the world can't fix. So she's you know one of the richest women in the world, and there's nothing you can do about it except try to survive and here she was having a third child by choice. Um, the expression in in circles in the DC area became three is the new two. Having having two children um, was what educated, elite, wealthy couples did because they needed to devote the time and resources to their two kids and put them in
0: $50,000 a year private schools. And so everyone's One, one like, parent a per child, right? So the child right. always has at least one parent glued to their backs as they go through life. <laughs>
4: so all of a sudden- uh, the most famous iconic couple in the world is bucking that trend and having a third. So that became the expression. And it wasn't long after that, that in social circles around here, people started talking about how four was the new trend okay. because it was a status symbol. Like you, if you could have four kids, that must mean that you had means or that you were really with it and together and just like a high powered couple. And, you know, these are not reasons to have children. I mean, children are an end and a good in and of themselves. However, I'm not surprised to see that people are kind of once again reconsidering uh, what is an ideal family size to them. And I think it's a great thing to see that uh, for the first time in, you know, half of a century, people view a bigger family as something to be desired. I always wonder
3: if that acceptance and that social status thing gave people like a per- permission to have the family size that they maybe really wanted anyway, but right. felt that pressure to have like the one bond one, like replacement rate only, two max. And um, the fact that it was, you know, lauded for other reasons, you know, let them, you know, have the, as many kids as they had wanted to have anyway.
0: What do, you, what do we think was, okay, well, there are a lot of reasons that people weren't having large families or didn't want them, I should say, cause there's, we're talking here about the desirability of larger families, right? I, I've heard all sorts of, uh, I mean, I, you hear and read about uh, population, uh, the the pressure of population on on resources, um, the pressure of greater populations on climate, right? Because uh, people as carbon emitters, for instance, uh, do you think that, do you guys think that this is something that people are starting to reject and, and starting to think that maybe um, larger families overall are... are not a danger to the climate and and the and world resources. Well, I
4: think we have to. It's important to note that people aren't actually having bigger families; they just want. <laughs> They're bigger talking families. about it,
2: right? In
4: fact, I think the article said that the gap between the number of children women are having and the number that couples view as ideal is like at an all time high. Oh, okay, That's, and yeah. and so you know, I I don't think that many people are doing it because of climate. I just don't. Um, I do think that people are not having as many kids for reasons that I, as a now a mom of five, very much understand, which are the cost of living is insane. The cost and availability of housing is like in a crisis point. Um, The cost and availability of good childcare um, is crazy. And people are scattered from their families. They don't live in networks of support anymore. It is so hard to have even just one baby without good support. Forget about having four or five, I think, for most couples. So uh, I think it's, there's something a little bit tragic about this. I I just said that it was good and it is that people want to have big families, but it's tragic that they're not, but they want to um, because they, you know, there's so many financial and logistical obstacles that make that feel impossible. I mean, I think that the birth rate in the United States is the lowest it's ever been, and yes. it's now below replacement level.
0: But Lee, what do you think comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, here we have, we have we set up our lives in such a way, and we do this individually and collectively, that having a large family or almost any family is, is very difficult, right? We we put other things, we prioritize other things, we we move away from our families, we arrange ourselves in such a way that having a large family is, is very difficult. Now we say Maybe, we want. Now we say we want one. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? In this scenario?
3: Well, I think practically speaking, well, I don't. I guess I don't know which one is the chicken and which one's the egg. But
0: <laughs> after I, it's read a bad this analogy. Article, okay.
3: <laughs> it's okay. Like, I was thinking about how, you know, the sort of artificial reproductive technology industry, I think people really rely on that. And the success rates are just not what I think people who haven't, like, I mean, you can Google it and find out right away how successful it is. but. Um, I think that's part of the problem is that people are like, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just do IVF. I can still pursue this and make partner at the law firm and then I'll have children. Or, they, or
0: they, I will person. adopt. And you or, and I are both adoptive moms and we know that's very difficult to, just to achieve an adoption in these yes, this day and sure. age. Yes, hard.
3: absolutely. And I think that's part of it. I think people, um, you know, think about, maybe they think about egg freezing, but they do it too late. I know that a lot of... Um, I've had, I've heard anecdotal evidence that many clinics have a pretty strict cutoff rate for how old you can be to use your own eggs with IVF. Sometimes it's as low as 35. And I think a lot of people probably uh, don't wanna use donor gametes. So I think a lot of that also contributes to the fact that people had wanted to have bigger families, but they just, even with reproductive technologies, you know, they would slept in for too late. And as you know, too, there are age restrictions with adoption. And so, and it takes long enough to uh, pursue that and do the home study and everything too, that, you know, you can get to a point where you age out of that too, I think. So I think the you know, delaying marriage and delaying uh, having children till later is, is a big part of it. And I think we all know, we all know even traditional Catholic families who, when you think about your Gracie, you are not like this, but when they think about their children getting married right out of college are kind of like, Oh, you know, technically I I think that that's a good thing to do, but not for my kid. You Um, know, my kids got, my kids got things to do. Absolutely.
0: There's a lot of um, pushback for early marriage. And in order to have a large family, you have to marry early. Right, mm -hmm. Ashley?
4: (laughs) Yeah. It does help when you start in your twenties. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. (laughs) but no, it's true. Uh, the, the data said that women are having children at the oldest they ever have, both starting to have children. Um, that number is like two years older than it was just a few years ago. And more women are having kids in their 40s than ever before, which shows that, you know, people who wanted to have children are, you know, trying later than would normally, you know, usually women by their 40s are like, I can't do this anymore. Um so it is all very interesting. And, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting was the percent of Gen Xers. I'm sorry, Gen. What's the young Gen? Why?
0: I think Gen yes, Y. I'm, I'm X.
4: Yeah. The Gen Yers who say they want to have kids is the largest it's ever been.
0: Wow, um, That's a really good sign.
4: No, no, that they don't want to have kids. Oh, don't. Yeah, they disproportionately do not want to have kids. They're the most likely generation to say they don't want to have kids. Oh, that's really sad. Well, the problem is, we all know that's going to change. You know, they say that because they are the ones who are steeped in this climate doomism. They are the ones, all this, you know, kind of alarmist talk about social justice and things like that.
0: But also, but the they are is, children of disorder and divorce, right? I mean, every ge- sure. every succeeding generation has fewer yeah. intact families.
4: And but the problem is, they're gonna they're gonna get older, and they're gonna get married, and they're gonna want to have kids. So, I I my worry is that's only gonna exacerbate the problem of children of of families couples starting later. That if you're starting out more than any other generation with the notion of I don't want to have kids at all. I mean, we all know that for most people, they grow up, they mature, they fall in love, and that changes. But um, when you're starting out with such a strong view like that, I just think it's going to make it, you know, exacerbate the problem of starting late and delayed fertility in terms of cramping the ability of the number of children you're able to have.
3: And is that the generation two that's moving back home to their parents' basements after college? Yeah. So that probably doesn't help their mindset at all. Probably don't want to raise a family in the basement.
4: And they're the ones with the student debt that's off the chain. Yeah. So I know a couple that felt like they couldn't start a family until they finished paying at least one of their student debts because the student payment, they couldn't make both their student payments and make a daycare payment, but they had to make the daycare payment in order to to work, to make the payment. To work, to make the student loan payment. So they were really had their hands tied and they felt like it was imprudent to actually have a child. And, and that is kind of the reality that, you know, people who are forming families are facing in terms of the cost of living is that, you know, if you don't have a support network, a, a mother or a mother-in-law around the corner who can help watch your kids so you can work to pay off your student debt, you're really strapped. And so that is to me where the tragedy really is, is that, you know, those are the couples that, they want to have kids now, and they want to have more than less, but feel that they can't because of the way we've structured our society and our economy, and the amount of money that you have to spend to to get a degree to earn a decent living.
0: And Lee, you live in a university town, and you mm-hmm. you talk to young people all the time. Where when you you have your finger on the pulse of young people, I think, what do you see as far as their this particular cohort? Right, because you live in. Uh, in uh yeah, in Indiana, I, you know, Notre Dame. I, I do see a lot of kids
3: who do get married, um either right after or maybe even, you know, during uh, well actually our colleague Maureen who couldn't join us today, her son Jack is married to um his lovely wife, Caitlin, and they are in law school, both of them, actually at two different law schools, and they've made it work. I I see a lot of kids who do, do, you know, like what I did, got married as soon as they graduated. and um, But I also see the pressure at an elite Catholic university cuts both ways because everyone's got grad school on their mind. Everyone, you know, wants to move to Chicago or New York or D.C. and, you know, try to make it in the big city and they need to do that and then of course they get there and i mean really college is a great place to meet your spouse and you know you can feel really alone and isolated unless you find you tap into a great catholic community somewhere or other you know but with these trends i mean it's hard it's hard to meet someone and i think that women decide to put it off and then find themselves you know still looking for love at 30. so i don't know i'd say it's the people the kids that i hang out with it's maybe which is not very many the way um but it's uh I'd say it's about 50-50 split. It sort of just depends. Um a lot of times, you know, a lot of times they're d- in different financial positions. They're able to, you know, be in school and or one of them for, to be in school, you know, they live in a place where um it's affordable to live on, you know, uh, a meager income. In fact the one actually had thing happened a couple of years ago. There used to be marriage uh marriage housing at Notre Dame, campus housing, and they bulldozed it to um oh build more buildings. Um and that was a really big problem, because it was one, one of the ways that, uh, you know, these young married couples with, you know, some of them were PhD students, and the other one was a stay at home parent. And it was the one way they were able to afford to do that at that point in their lives.
0: I've entered, so, a, I mean, I've entered a new stage in my life, because I my my oldest son is married, and the, he and his wife are expecting a baby. And I, I think back now to all the ways that my parents and my in-laws helped us my husband and I when we were young and and in school and having a baby (laughs) Mm -hmm. and how how welcoming they were to the baby and how positive they were and how willing they were for to sacrifice themselves to to help us start our families and I think that that must be very rare nowadays what do you think Ashley? is that something that can can young people count on the support of their parents to 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 make that happen for them
4: i mean i think increasingly less so and i'm someone who just experienced that have having had my fifth kid and i realized looking back that my mom basically gave up an entire month of her year uh, to help me almost around the clock Mm -hmm. with my other kids and i'm not even working in some big job this was just helping me survive mm-hmm. <laughs> having a newborn with four older kids one of whom is a very sort of needy toddler and she came here for a week and then took my kids with her for a week and then i came and stayed with her for two weeks and she fed everybody all three meals around the clock for you know four straight weeks basically and it really struck me that how how could anybody expect a mom um, to have four or five kids without that kind of support. And that's not the kind of support that you can hire. Even if you have gajillions of dollars, mm-hmm. there is nothing to replace. Or that can take the place of someone like a grandmother or a mother-in-law who, you know, can help you in those really vulnerable early weeks. So it's, I really do think that the sort of fragmentation of the social fragmentation of families, you know, with kids, it's it's the catch-22. You want, you work hard, you make sacrifices so that they can go on to have opportunities and be successful. But what that means is oftentimes they're living across the country from you. Um, and then you're not there to help them you know, when they have a young family. I don't know how you put that jack back in the box.
0: Well, maybe conversations like this are helping mm. people think about how they can support their family members in, in, that, in that wonderful um, adventure that is having children and, and maybe even achieving the number of children that, that people now uh, claim to desire. So we can hope that that's, that that's true. It's good to think about the needs of those around us. Sometimes we can be a help to a neighbor Right, who just had her new baby, and is we can't be a mother to her, but we can sure bring o- we can sure bring over a casserole and offer to 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 take to mind her older children for an afternoon so she can rest with the baby and things like that. Right, so Brilliant. let's think we can think about those things. Thank you for joining me, ladies, and enjoy your big, large families uh, for the rest <laughs> of, of of this day. You too. Thanks, Gracie. My Gracie. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
5: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the Risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. For the third straight week, Jesus will teach us by means of a parable. This Sunday, it's generally called the Parable of the Two Sons. Like last week, Jesus employs the image of working in a vineyard, because from the time of Isaiah, the Holy Land was always referred to as a luxuriant vineyard entrusted to the people of God by God himself. Last week, Jesus spoke to us about his calling all hands on deck, going out at six and nine, noon, three and five, to call laborers into his vineyard because he wants us all working to take in the great harvest of souls. This time, he focuses on two brothers called by their father to work in his vineyard. The first son initially refuses when his dad tells him, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. Afterward, however, he changes his mind and goes to work. Later, Jesus implies that this is the proper way to understand those prostitutes and tax collectors and other types of sinners, who even though for lengthy periods of time they had said no to the sixth, seventh, and other commandments, Eventually they converted and were now living and working in the Lord's vineyard, building up and entering into his kingdom. The second son in the parable responds to his father's command, saying respectfully, I will go, sir, but never acts on that promise. Jesus says that this son represents precisely those whom he was addressing, the scribes and the Pharisees, who so many times very publicly prayed in the temple, chanting their loud amens to God, but who were not following through on their covenantal commitments. The Pharisees, scribes, and elders, who with their lips were outwardly saying yes to the Father's will, but with their actions were saying a defiant no, ended up showing where this hypocrisy can lead. They ended up framing Jesus and having him tortured, crucified, and killed. It's obvious that the Lord wants all of us today to reflect not only on what we say to God, but especially on how we follow through on the commitments we make to him. We're listening to this program called Conversations with Consequences, dedicated to helping us live better in accordance with our Catholic faith, because I presume we're all basically people who have said yes to God many times over the course of our lives. On the day of our baptism, either we or our parents and godparents on our behalf spoke up and made our baptismal promises. At our confirmation, we renewed those commitments to reject Satan, his evil works and empty promises, and to believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. We also made the commitment at our confirmation to go out to work in the Lord's vineyard with tongues of fire, proclaiming the Lord's gospel with ardor. The Lord wants us to ask ourselves today whether we've been following through on those commitments and been getting down to work in his vineyard. If we haven't been following through, if we've been saying no to the Lord with our bodies despite the yeses of our lips, then he wants to help us to learn from the example of the first son in the parable. It's not fundamentally words that matter, but deeds of conversion and faith. For many of us sons and daughters of God, our yes in faith may have become too routine, We say it so naturally and readily that we've ceased to understand the meaning of what we're saying and to act on that commitment. Every week we say amen to the words, the body of Christ. But do we really structure our lives in a way consistent with this affirmation? We say thanks be to God when the word of God is proclaimed. But do we show that gratitude for this incredible gift by making time each day to meditate on what God's saying to us and apply it to our life? We affirm, I believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But do we still believe when God asks us to do something challenging, like hard work in his vineyard? Or does our faith weaken when God asks of us something we just don't want to do? We confess our faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But do we look at the church as just one other organization to which we belong, or rather as the bride and body of Christ? that Christ himself set up for our salvation, for the salvation of our family members, friends, enemies, and the whole world. It's clear that God is seeking to move us today to let our hearts be touched by faith, to get beyond words, to make our life an amen and a thy will be done. To learn how to do this, we need to grasp that there's a third son whose example is set before us today in this gospel scene. Someone who both says yes and then does what he's asked. It's the son who told us the parable, Jesus himself. As we read in the letter of the Hebrews, upon entering the world, Jesus said to his father, here I am, Lord, I have come to do your will. Jesus never had to change his mind as the first son did in the parable, because in his mind, he was always seeking what the father wanted. The more we think with the mind of Christ and live according to that mentality with the help of God's grace, the more we will please the father response to Jesus' question in the gospel, which did the Father's will, we're called to respond that Jesus did the will of the Father. And today Jesus calls us to follow him in doing the Father's will together with him. He calls us to say yes to the Father and to act in unison with him on that yes. As we prepare for the month of October, dedicated to Mary under the title of Our Lady of the Holy Rosary, we can similarly focus on how she, like the blessed fruit of her womb, always sought to say fiat to God and to let her whole life develop in fidelity to God's will. Throughout October, we're invited by the Church to grow spiritually through praying the Holy Rosary, pondering Jesus' and Mary's perpetual yeses to God in the joyful, luminous, sorrowful, and glorious moments of their lives. It helps us to echo Jesus and Mary's fidelity, putting God's word and will into practice. As St. John Paul II powerfully commented in his 2002 exhortation on the Holy Rosary, How could one possibly contemplate the mystery of the child of Bethlehem and the joyful mysteries without experiencing the desire to welcome, defend, and promote life and to shoulder the burdens of suffering children all over the world? How could one possibly follow in the footsteps of Christ the revealer in the mysteries of light without resolving to be a witness to his beatitudes in daily life? How could one contemplate Christ carrying the cross and Christ crucified without feeling the need to act as a Simon of Cyrene for our brothers and sisters weighed down by grief or crushed by despair? Finally, how could one possibly gaze upon the glory of the risen Christ and of Mary Queen of Heaven without yearning to make this world more beautiful, more just, more closely conformed to God's plan? Far from offering an escape from the problems of the world, he concluded. The rosary obliges us to see them with responsible and generous eyes and obtains for us the strength to face them with the certainty of God's help and the firm intention of bearing witness in every situation to love, to the truth, and ultimately to God. In helping us to focus on Mary and Jesus, the rosary strengthens us to imitate them in our faithful yes to God. It's a school of the new and eternal covenant. So I'd urge you this month to begin to pray the rosary if you don't pray it every day. And if you do, to pray with greater devotion, focus on obtaining what the mysteries contain. This whole gift, especially as the church begins the synod in Rome, so that the whole body and bride of Christ will say yes to God's will, rather than to try to take the church in a direction contrary to that will. The other great means to help us to live this lesson of Sunday's parable is the Holy Eucharist, which we ponder, of course, in the fifth luminous mystery. The Eucharist, which we're so mind-blowingly privileged to receive, helps us to conform our whole life to God's will. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that the Father would take the chalice from him, but then added three times, but not my will, but thine be done. That chalice was the cup of his suffering, filled with his own blood. When Jesus told us during the Last Supper to do this in memory of me, he's not merely telling us to convene as we will on Sunday to celebrate this greatest event of all. Jesus was telling us to make our whole lives truly Eucharistic and following his example to become obedient even to our own death, saying to God and to others, this is my body, this is my blood, this is everything I am and have, this is my will given for you. May this third son, this faithful son, whom we will receive at Mass this Sunday, help us not just to say amen, but to follow through on the mission he out of love has entrusted to each and all of us, so that not merely by our lips, but by our life, we might help each other to become living commentaries of the words, Thy will be done, as we respond to God's words, Son, daughter, go work in my vineyard today. God bless you.